0: mary how's it going
1: yeah good thanks dan
0: how's your cycling going
1: yeah better this weekend i've generally really enjoying cycling it's a bit like being back at uni where i'm cycling kind of everywhere but it's less appealing when it's raining so nice to see some sunny weather this weekend
0: yeah the rain's not your friend there is it more cars on the road as well right now i guess than a few weeks ago
1: yeah yeah a little bit more a little bit more i'm trying to avoid roads really but yeah it's coming back to normal i think a little bit
0: all right bring on the sun
1: Welcome to Investment Uncut.
0: In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis.
1: And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com.
0: So today on Investment Uncut, we're joined by investment partner, David Wrigley. David,
2: welcome to the show.
1: Hello. Hi, David. David, could you tell the listeners a bit more about your role at LCP?
2: So I work in the investment team, well, like you guys, obviously. I work mainly with trustees and companies of all shapes and sizes. So some very small schemes and some very large schemes. Also on the LDI team, so liability-driven investment, working on hedging of pension scheme liabilities. Cool. So David, why don't you tell us one thing we should know about you that we aren't going to find on your CV? Probably not immediately obvious from my name or accent, but I actually grew up in Belgium. So lived there from the age of four till coming back to the UK for university. Cool. Languages you speak, Was that the French speaking side or? I lived in the Flemish speaking side. So mainly Dutch and Flemish was the language of choice in our local football team, but obviously did French at school actually went to an international school, so ended up doing GCSEs just like everyone in the UK, our own little bit of England in Belgium. Right. Oh, fantastic.
1: I imagine you're an expert in beer as well then.
2: No comment. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, today
0: we were hoping to have a really good conversation about one of the interesting topics, interesting current topics, and that's negative interest rates here in the UK. I mean, been a couple of recent developments, haven't there? There's happened relatively recently in the UK, but obviously it's been a wider phenomenon for a little while. So Dave, what's happened recently on this area that sort of brought it to the fore?
2: Yeah, so we haven't actually seen negative interest rates in the UK in terms of base rates. So we're still at about 10 basis points. But there's a lot more rhetoric around the potential for negative interest rates. And actually, we've seen gilt yields go negative. So for the first time in history, a negative yield in gilt was issued 0.003% for three years. So a bit of a landmark for the UK, highlighting that we're in for a period of very low and probably negative interest rates over the coming years.
0: That was late May, wasn't it, that guilt issuance went out? And I think I was reading that, so the coupon on that was obviously positive, so it pays a positive coupon, but because the investors paid more than the face value for it, that obviously equates to a negative return overall
2: when you work it all
0: out over three years.
2: Yeah, and in the days that followed as well, we saw guilt yields go for more negative, so more of the gilts around that three-year mark were yielding even more negative than the
0: 0.03%. Yeah. And it's interesting following the rhetoric from the Bank of England, isn't it? Because as you say, the, the message is very much that, that wasn't part of the toolkit until roughly around that time when suddenly the rhetoric was more everything's on the table. So I know some people have taken that as a real strong indication, but as always with central banks, you, you've got to wonder whether they're just trying to manipulate things by what they say rather than what they're actually doing, haven't you? I guess it's very much second-guessing it all
2: the time. Yeah, and the market clearly doesn't believe them when they sort of previously said that they're likely to use negative interest rates. Like you say, things are more back on the table now in terms of negative interest rates and the market's expecting rates to stay very low for a very long period of time. I mean, I was looking at 50-year Sonia swaps, so effectively what the market thinks base rates are going to be on average for the next 50 years and they're they're pretty much zero. So to make money on that investment, you need base rates to be negative on average for the next 50 years not just a short-term blip to solve a a coronavirus crisis, but pretty much every year for the next 50 years, they're going to have to be around zero or negative.
0: And that's based off an actual contract in the market that people are are buying and selling and trading every day, right? That's, That's quite remarkable.
2: Yeah, many of our pension schemes will invest in swaps to hedge their liabilities.
1: Is it worth taking a step back and just talking about why would rates be made negative, sort of the reasons behind that action?
2: Yeah, so I think, I mean, a couple of reasons spring to mind. So One is obviously with short-term rates being so low and an expectation that we're going to be in for some economic difficulty for quite a period of time. So you can see quite a lot of logic for why rates should be zero for the next five years, say. And another big sort of impact in the market is while the Bank of England obviously controls short-term rates, there's also an awful lot of control of long-term rates through its QE programme. So they're buying an awful lot of of long-dated government bonds and they're buying more than they're actually being issued unsurprisingly, the price of those gilts go up and up and up as the Bank of England buys them at any price, then has knock-on impacts on on the swap market as well, because investors obviously have that freedom to choose, or most investors at least, have a freedom to choose between investing in swaps or investing in gilts to hedge the price of their liabilities.
0: Yeah. Taking even a bit of a step back from that, I mean, the reason I guess any central bank would go to negative rates is because that's the rate of interest that the banks on their deposits with the central bank and so the theory being that that just incentivizes the banks to lend more, put more money into the economy rather than deposit money at the central bank. And that's something that was written up quite nicely in The Economist a couple of weeks ago. I'll share a link to that. And obviously it has been negative rates have been pretty widespread in Europe, haven't they, for I think at least four or five years. Japan, I think. Sweden, Denmark, I think, are the other countries. So, I mean, it's, they've been fairly fairly widespread. And I guess... I don't think we could definitely say they've been the success, can we? It's just the jury's a bit still out, I suppose. It's, it's just unclear, right?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, Denmark was the interesting one. They even had negative mortgage rate, didn't they? So right, like, Yeah, a bad deal. <laughs> Buy a house and get paid.
1: Yeah.
2: I know you're exactly right. I mean, that's why the Bank of England is so nervous about using them, because you look at those countries and it, it doesn't appear like they've been a screaming success, albeit it's quite hard to judge because you don't know whether you'd have been worse off if they'd kept slightly positive rates over that period. I think there's no doubt that it does encourage people to go out and invest their money. I'm not super keen on investing in cash and just losing money. I'm more encouraged to go and invest that than, say, if it was a slightly positive return, it's perhaps a little bit psychological, because it might not make a big difference whether you earn 0.1% higher or lower. But that psychological amount of just you know, losing money makes me want to invest in.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good question. So is there a real difference between the rates are 0.1% at the moment if they went to minus 0.1% Is that a big change or not?
2: It doesn't really make a huge amount of difference in terms of gilts or swaps or any of those sorts of investments that you might make. But they're perfectly capable of dealing with negative interest rates, as we've seen in Europe. I think it's more the point that it's just a great time to reevaluate what you're doing. Does it really make sense to invest in UK government bonds and lose money? Wouldn't you be better off investing in other things?
0: Like you say, it's a sort of a psychological trigger, isn't it? Because I guess us, from a very technical investment perspective, you can sort of argue that, well, when that yield goes from plus a tiny bit to minus a tiny bit, there's not necessarily a whole lot that's changed there. But the psychology of losing money in those sort of investments is an important trigger, isn't it, to think about where you are?
2: Yeah, definitely. And it'll be, I mean, for actuaries as well, you know, an important trigger to just think hard about, you know, the discount rates that they're using and the long-term targets that are being set a scheme that's targeting to be fully funded on a position where they can invest in gilts is effectively saying, I'd like to be fully funded in a position where I don't need any further investment returns. Clearly, that's just a catalyst for reviewing what you're doing.
1: Yeah. I guess interesting as well that where we've seen this in other countries, so Europe, as an example, we talked about the reasons behind this perhaps being more short-term reasons and the fix for coronavirus type rhetoric, but they've had this position for some time. So your reference earlier to the sort of 50-year average being negative kind of, I guess, plays straight into that, doesn't it? That actually, this action might be taken with much more short-term reaction in mind. But actually, how do we then unwind that position, I guess, is the challenge.
2: Yeah, we've seen it in Japan for a very long time, where they've had rates pretty much nailed to the floor. And it's been a very difficult position for them to get out of.
0: Yeah, and then there's a really interesting point. point that's been raised relating to quite a lot of the emergency measures, actually, in the current environment, that Putting emergency measures in place is much easier than unwinding them and getting out of it and agreeing when the emergency is actually over. The evidence from other countries is that, yeah, these negative rates are hard to get out of that. And yeah, maybe the markets are just, aren't they? Well, markets do seem to be assuming that actually they're going to be in place for really quite a long time, aren't they? So from what you're saying, David, potentially decades even is the assumption.
2: Yeah, become a drug addict almost, don't they? Just become dependent on these short-term measures that need to be sort of kept in place. Otherwise, a whole stack of cards sort of falls over.
0: Yeah. Why don't we step through some of the impacts of it then? I mean, if we're saying the market's assuming this is going to stay in place for more than just a short-term thing, I suppose it's worth stepping through the different groups that it might sort of impact. And I guess the one to start with maybe is sort of just individual savers and investors who are saving and investing their money. What do we think of the implications for them?
2: For individual investors, it doesn't feel like you want to leave huge amounts of money lying around in cash accounts. It doesn't feel like screaming buys or taking a long-term view at buying long-term gilts, yielding you nothing. If it was my money and I've got a long-term view, like in my DC scheme, I prefer to invest in other things than government bonds in Europe where I don't get any investment return.
0: Of course, I suppose it's part of the thinking behind it, isn't it? Push people into taking a little bit more risk, stimulate the animal spirit's so-called sort of effects and that being a general, hopefully a push to economic sort of activity.
2: Yeah, so I guess we've seen that sort of the last week aside where we've seen some volatility in markets. You know, markets had responded really positively to a lot of the QE programs and low rates. What else are you supposed to do other than invest in equity markets when you can't park your money anywhere else? And that's been one of the main drivers, I suggest, for why we see such quick rebound in equity markets. Clearly, the world isn't back to normal. Still doing this podcast from semi-lockdown at home.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Pushing individual savers a bit further out on the risk spectrum, I guess, is certainly one consequence of it, isn't it? And I guess another one is this question, the extent to which banks actually pass it on, I guess, as a technical point. I mean, in the Sunday papers, you still do see some savings accounts and bonds and things with, with semi-reasonable levels of interest. Well, I say semi-reasonable, like 1% sort of thing, but it's something that's a little bit higher than that. So I guess that's a question. But I guess if it's a longer term thing, banks have no choice ultimately but then to pass it on
2: really otherwise they just get very squeezed on their margins aren't they so you would expect that exactly i mean that's one of the main drawbacks of negative rates is how do banks pass that on to consumers it's really hard to charge people for um, putting money with you so most banks don't and then they need to offset that somehow by charging higher rates on mortgages and loans and so on and then it it defeats the whole point of having taken down rates in the first place when you were trying to lower the cost of all those other things
0: well that's the other point, is the other side of the coin is the mortgages. I'm essentially looking to remortgage in not too distant future. So certainly wouldn't mind a mortgage at negative rates <laughs> coming along, but I wouldn't I wouldn't hold my breath for that right now because as you say, it depends again what the banks are passing on into their floating rate mortgage customers and generally probably still looking at positive interest rates there, aren't
2: we? Yeah, and banks you'd imagine are more nervous about lending to individuals as well. I mean, who knows what happens to the housing market? Could be in for falls in house prices, who knows? people are struggling with jobs and so on you know will they necessarily have a job will they be able to afford their mortgage so if if i was a bank i'd be looking to charge a higher premium now all else remaining equal than i would before the crisis so whether all those costs fully get passed or reductions in rates get fully passed on is difficult to see
1: it's really obvious from this that it's such a fine balance isn't it the different sort of factors playing into here so we've got negative rates potentially um encouraging individuals to invest in more risky assets, not great for banks, squeezing their margins. What about some of the other sort of market participants?
2: Pension schemes is the the one that obviously springs to my mind, working predominantly with pension schemes. And as we've seen, I mean, short term base rates don't tend to have a huge amount of impact on pension schemes. I mean, they don't leave huge amounts of money lying around in cash, not earning a return, it's actually the the longer term rates that have a much bigger impact on, on pension schemes, because they have a really big impact in the way that they value their liabilities. Um, so for your average pension scheme, if long term rates drop a percent, the value placed on their liabilities might go up by 20% plus. So we're seeing pension schemes have bigger and bigger deficits caused by these lower and lower rates, which ultimately will then end up putting more pressure on the Sponsors, um, perhaps the worst time possible.
0: It's a tricky one, isn't it? Because a lot of people that criticize that approach to discounting liabilities and placing higher values, it's pretty fundamental in a lot of ways to financial theory in that you take a risk free rate and then you build up discount rates and the returns on other assets from that kind of risk free rate. I don't think that's particularly controversial observation. You find that in sort of finance textbooks and all sorts of things. But I guess that theory wasn't developed in a world where those risk free rates were. Actually negative, it does sort of make you scratch your head a bit to say, "Well, that theory clearly works brilliantly; and it has worked pretty well." You do have to wonder whether that still makes sense.
2: Yeah, that sort of one-for-one one drop in gilt yields necessarily following through for one drop in investment return on all other assets is certainly something that's up for challenge. There are some assets that are closely linked to gilts, like very secure long-term corporate bonds, where the price of those does largely move in relation with gilt yields. But there are lots of other investments, like property, equities, where it's not obvious that because gilt yields fall 1%, the return on those investments should also fall 1%. And we haven't seen 20% increases in those markets when we saw a 20% increase in gilt markets. So they don't move one for one in real life as well. That's the difficulty, isn't it? On any given day, you can say, well, those things ought not to move one for
0: one. But then when you look at the back over the last decade or 20 years, it's much easier to argue there's been a big fall in gilt yields and a big fall in future expected returns wouldn't, wouldn't be particularly controversial. So it's funny, isn't it? Because you sort of want to link them together over the long term. But then over the short term, it always gets a bit problematic because in any given situation, you can kind of say, well, it sort of doesn't make sense. So it does leave you in a quite a difficult sort of spot.
2: Yeah. And from a pension scheme perspective, if your assets went up in line, you don't really have a problem. It's that over the long term, my assets might go up in line with gilts. But over the short term, they move in different ways. And when I've got to do a valuation every three years, it presents volatility to me, it opens up deficits, it can result in some big cash calls on companies at a time when companies really can't afford them.
1: Yeah, it's a really tricky feature, isn't it that you're encouraged as a pension scheme to be and you are a long term investor, except you have to do this exercise every three years that brings everything back to a short term measurement.
2: Yeah, there's huge amounts of encouragement to base everything off gilts rather than the actual investments that you own, which might make sense when you're still investing in equities and and risky assets and so on, because you haven't really matched any of your cash flows as such. You've more just got a long term investment. But once schemes get closer and closer to that end point of matching all their cash flows and having low risk investments it might make more sense to just discount off the investments you actually own rather than some gilts that you don't own and then adding some spread to it that doesn't reflect the spread on the assets you actually own. It, it can all end up being a bit backwards.
1: Yeah, and very academic. Yeah. And
0: when we're talking about gilts, I mean, pension schemes, defined benefit pension schemes like our clients, as stating the obvious, they're huge, huge buyers of gilts. I think owning sort of probably well over a trillion pounds or that sort of order of gilts. But I guess generally slightly longer dated, aren't they? So probably haven't been investing huge amounts in the negative yielding bonds yet, anyway. We're sort of more looking at the 20, 30 year type guilt. So, still a little bit of a positive return there, albeit not loans.
2: Correct. But they've been the ones that have been punished the most by the QE program. So, the way the QE program works is broadly speaking, they buy a third short term, a third medium term, and a third long term gilts Now, they don't issue a third, a third, a third. In fact, they've been issuing mostly short dated gilts So, they've been issuing a lot less long dated gilts than they've been buying. And that just increases the cost of all those long-dated gilts, which flows through to increasing the cost of all the pension schemes liabilities. And it doesn't really help the economy all that much because most companies aren't able to borrow at 30, 40, 50 years. It's not really reducing their costs. Most people don't have mortgages that have got fixed rates for 20, 30 years. It's not really reducing their costs. It's not really helping anyone other than it's just (laughs) increasing the price of long-term gilt yields, making them more and more expensive for pension schemes.
0: Yeah, and it's an interesting point you make there. Perhaps worth just unpacking that quickly. So we've, we've got a few different moving parts there, haven't we? Because you've got the Bank of England base rate, which is setting the sort of base short-term rate. That's one thing. And then you've got the rates that are implied, but all the guilt. But then we've got those two offsetting forces there, of course, because the Debt Management Office and DMO is currently issuing a huge amount of guilts because the government needs money. But at the same time, Bank of England is buying guilt in the QE program. We're in this, what feels like a much more complex world than we used to be with this tug of war between those two really quite powerful forces
2: which is what's affecting the prices of all these gilts that pension schemes and others are, are buying yeah because you hear people say well they'll have to issue the government will have to issue loads and loads of guilts to cope with all the extraordinary measures that are going on all the spending that's going on so good old supply and demand theory would suggest that they've got to issue a whole load of them then they should get cheaper but if they're just buying them all back and then some then actually the price goes the other way and they get more expensive
0: that sort of classic supply and demand thinking has said a lot, hasn't it? But that has just not come through really for years because we have we've seen higher supply and gilts for quite a long time. And Obviously, this is going to really step up now. It has stepped up this year and probably going to step up in the next year as well. Difficult to know how to read it because, like you say, it doesn't seem to follow the usual laws of supply and demand, I guess because you've got so much additional demand coming in there from the bank.
2: Yeah, and I reckon if they just bought a bit more shorter dated, it would probably offer some relief to pension schemes as well because controlling more of the shorter dated yield curve has more impact on people who are actually borrowing people's actual mortgages and so on. And perhaps issuing a few more long dated ones and not buying them back might give a bit of relief to pension schemes and UK PLC.
0: So so I guess we've highlighted a lot
2: of the parties
0: about are negatively affected by negative rates, as it were. So not great for individual savers, not brilliant for banks, paying for pension schemes. I suppose stating the obvious, I mean, who benefits?
2: corporate online lending obviously benefit quite a lot that's one of the main reasons for doing it is lowering the borrowing cost for everyone as rates fall and fall and fall and if credit spreads can follow suit or at least sort of stay where they are then it makes it a lot cheaper for all those people that are borrowing
0: yeah and then the government right obviously to say the obvious i mean the government level of government debt right now is higher than it's been for a long time but the actual level of the interest payments every year is i think it's an all-time low well, negative guilt yields, you get paid to issue debt. <laughs> it's a good <laughs> investment for the government.
2: <laughs>
1: What's exactly. that going
0: So, When you think about investments like, I don't know, be that HS2 or Northern Powerhouse levelling up, or kind of renewable energy, all those sort of things, green transition. In a way, the government's being offered free money to sort of invest in those things right now.
2: Yeah, and the danger of getting political, I guess, what a great opportunity to invest in UK infrastructure when you can borrow money at zero interest or negative interest, maybe.
1: And that's interesting, isn't it? Because we'd had the announcement about lots of infrastructure spending and then COVID hit. And I think there was a bit of doubt cast over whether that investment would continue. And actually, in a negative rate environment, why should it not? So we've talked a lot about nominal rates, but shouldn't we really be talking about inflation here as well?
2: Yeah, and we've been talking about rates being negative, but obviously in a real sense or an in inflation adjusted a sense, we've had negative rate for a long period of time. We've had inflation up at two, three percent, and we've had Base rates nailed pretty much to zero, so we've had negative real rates for quite a long period of time, and we've got negative gilt yields on index negative real yields on indexing gilts. We've had those for a long period of time, so in that sense, I guess there's nothing really new here.
1: Yeah,
0: clearly that's been difficult for individual savers because most individuals looking to with your savings and your investments looking to ideally beat inflation, obviously you keep you sort of protect the real value of your savings. And I guess that's required taking a decent amount of risk over the last sort of 10, 15 years. I think that's caused a bit of a rethink of a lot of kind of private wealth type portfolios because you just need a different portfolio now to even keep up with inflation. Again, it's just that theme of people being pushed down out on the risk spectrum a bit more.
2: Yeah, and we've had real deals go down towards minus 3%, I think, in the UK. So guaranteed loss of return after inflation of 3% every year. It was like a pretty poor investment on the face of it.
1: And yet investment
2: hasn't fallen. Yeah. Well, I mean, you would have said the same thing when they were minus 1% and they've been a fantastic investment
1: since. Yeah.
0: And of course, yeah, it flows through to defined benefit pension schemes as well. Absolutely. And, and our clients there because so many of those pensions are linked to inflation quite strongly. So their target really is inflation-linked one as well, isn't it?
1: Yeah.
0: The one other point to make there, though, I suppose, is that you know, the inflation is where it is now. It's sort of what, two, two and a bit percent. But there is obviously a, a world where inflation could go lower. Some people saying that we could be looking at negative inflation sort of over the summer. So potentially a little uh, sort of ray of hope there for savers and investors if, ironically, if rates went negative, but then inflation came down to sort of meet it, would be back in a bit more of an equilibrium perhaps where real rates were a bit more closer to zero or positive.
2: And arguably earning a higher return than you have been over the last few years when you take inflation into account. It's actually quite surprising looking how expensive it is to hedge inflation in the UK over the next three, five years. If you look at levels in the UK market compared to US and Europe, it's a lot more expensive where inflation is projected to stay closer to that zero level. Maybe that's due to some of the Brexit uncertainty, potential currency weakness, and us potentially importing quite a lot of inflation. It seems like investors are willing to pay quite a premium to hedge inflation in the UK compared to what others in Europe and US are paying.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, that's interesting, isn't it? You you bring up the Brexit point, and it's easy to, to sort of skim over that. There are quite a few variables in there at the moment, I guess is the main point. We've dwelt quite a lot on the impact of the coronavirus crisis on, on creating negative rates, but Brexit's still looming there as well, isn't it, in the background for the UK? Big question mark over what that could do to inflation, currency rates, and all those kinds of things. So real tricky mix there.
2: Yeah, definitely. And when we had surprise news or surprise downside news around Brexit before, we've seen big sharp falls in long-term guilt. So if there is some news that the market's perceive to be bad coming around the corner, we might get some quite deeply negative guilt yields.
0: That's an important point, isn't it? That we might think that having negative guilt yields is one thing, but there are actually arguments why they could get even more negative, which are not to be ignored And that you've got Brexit around the corner, potentially quite wide range of uncertainties around that as well. So the fact that they're negative now, we might be looking back in a year and actually that they're, they're even more so.
2: Yeah, and that could go one or two ways really as well, because I mean, the other Brexit scenario is that people start getting more nervous about the credit worthy of the UK. And actually there's potential that you end up going towards sort of Greece- Italy, those sorts of levels. And actually, we could see guilt yields rise quite a lot and have quite a strong credit premium in theory. I mean, we have got a lot of advantages over some of those European countries. We're at least in control of our own currency and able to print money and so on, which they're not able to. But you can produce arguments for for it going either way. And you can see why most pension schemes and insurers and so on would rather not play the game and just hedge.
1: And that's a really good point, I think, just coming on to kind of actions for investors to take. It's really understanding kind of where your risks are and whether you're willing to take them, I suppose, isn't it, in relation to some of this? That if there's a risk that rates could go either way, do you want to take that risk at all? And other there things you can do to not run that risk?
2: Yeah, and how big an impact it has on you. Not hedging your interest rates as a pension scheme could cause your liabilities, as I said, to go up 20 30% if rates fall another 1% it takes a lot for your other investments to cause that kind of damage to your pension scheme. So where you take lots of lots of clever action in your investment strategy, diversify your holdings, make sure you haven't got too much exposed to one thing, take risks where you want to take it. And then if you don't carefully manage the other side, then it can just blow all that out of the water.
0: And the real difficulty there, I mean, I've been working with pension schemes for almost 20 years. And for pretty much that entire time, everyone's looked at where guilt yields are and said, well, surely they must go higher because they're so low sort of thing that was the case when they were sort of at 5% in the sort of mid-2000s. It was the case when they were at 1% or 2%. It was the case when they were at half percent It's still the case now. So I guess one of the lessons to take away from that is that rates generally have been on a massive downward trajectory for sort of 30 years. And there's a tendency maybe to get a little bit anchored to where they were in the past. And I suppose the lesson is there's always arguments both ways. Be totally honest. It's kind of back to the point you're saying, David. That's why a lot of investors end up saying, "Look, arguments both ways. Don't really want to play that game too much. Would rather stick to investing where we believe the odds are a little bit more in our favour, such as investing in equities or credit or sort of growth assets, which do generally sort of go up."
2: Yeah, I mean, looking back on it as well, you have every pension scheme saying, "I've got plans in the future to buy lots of index-linked gilts." Surprisingly, the price went up and up and up as all the pension schemes kept buying indexing gilts and de-risking. I mean, we've still got some more ways to go on that journey. You know, Most pension schemes have a lot higher hedge ratios than they do. But on average, the pension scheme industry is not fully hedged. There's still some way to go in de-risking. But eventually, that trend must sort of come to an end and pension schemes will stop buying indexing gilts to the same extent. They'll start moving into insurance contracts. They'll paid out their benefits and they won't need to buy all the new indexing gilts that might emerge over the coming decades.
1: And that'll be a really interesting time, I guess. What fills that gap in terms of government borrowing, in a sense? Where does that money come from?
2: Yeah, I mean, got a stated policy to reduce the proportion of indexing gilts. And one of the main reasons for that is the closed and maturing nature of the UK pension scheme industry. Pension schemes buy 90%-ish of the index indexing gilts that are out there. And if they're all closed maturing moving to insurers and the world is moving or pensions world is moving towards dc and who's going to step in and buy all these indexing guilt so they're very wary of those impacts and that's why we're seeing reduced and reduced indexing guilt issuance
0: it's certainly going to be a really interesting one to look back on in the future right i mean there's every chance we'll be looking back on this in 10 years saying gosh that was crazy period of time when those rates were negative or we might be looking back thinking well they're still negative or they're more so thinking, oh, they're parking back to the good old days when, when rates were only at minus 0.1 or whatever. So we really do not know, but we'll see.
2: Minus 0.03 might have been the best investment someone ever made. Yeah,
0: <laughs> we shall
2: see.
1: So David, this has been a really great discussion. I think we've probably drawn it to a close now. How can the listeners find you, read your stuff that you release?
2: Yeah, so I'm on LCP's website. My profile page is on there and there's some blogs that have written on there as well. One in particular about the impact of negative guilt yields, and then on, on LinkedIn as well. Please get in touch. Super. And David, any recommendations for the listeners before we go? Any books, podcasts, series, those kind of things? Well, I'm quite an avid fantasy football player, so I'd definitely recommend listening to some of the podcasts on there and make sure you get maximum points in the newly launched fantasy football. That's been on hold, presumably, right? Because you can't do fantasy football without right, Oh, It's all coming back now. Got game week. <laughs>
1: I've done a really good job of learning stuff about the league at the start of the season. and I think I've forgotten everything I learned, so I'm not looking forward to it coming back. <laughs> and David, finally, what would you say is the most underappreciated thing about investing?
2: In terms of pension schemes, I think it's definitely an underappreciation of the power of generating higher investment returns. There is such a focus on de-risking, 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 but actually reducing the amount of investment return you're earning is a really big risk. Many pension schemes, it's probably in scheme, it's probably in scheme members, company, everyone's best interest just to generate a bit of higher investment return. So I think the over-focus on de-risking is potentially dangerous for companies and scheme members interesting
1: perspective.
0: Okay, cool. David, that's been a fantastic conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. No problem.
1: Thanks, David. Cheers. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. As a reminder, if you like what you are here, please do leave us a review. We really appreciate it. That's all we have time for this week. So please join us again next week for another episode of Investment Uncut.